the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with five to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10, H-E-R-O dot C-O. The Slackers formed in 1991. Initially, the band was all over the map stylistically, but eventually they realized that they should pick a sound and stick with it. They chose ska and reggae, but rather than mixing it with punk like a lot of their peers were doing, they chose to keep the grooves traditional and to mix these Jamaican sounds with soul, rock and roll, and jazz, creating a sound that would appeal to traditional ska fans and people who just like good, new, original music. Today, we speak to keyboardist, lead singer, Vic Ruggiero, and we go deep into some Slacker's history. Not a lot of singers out there like Vic. No. Vic has a very distinct voice. That was probably the, the most interesting thing to me the whole time we were talking to him right now, was listening to his voice. Yeah, I think like there are other singers. like He, he kind of reminds me of some like, like rock and roll or like folk singers, you know, kind of like classic revered singers. Yeah. But I can't really think of other ska bands that have a singer like Vic where it has that sort of like tattered, just like every man kind of voice. I don't I don't know how to best describe it, but it's like it's soulful, it's kind of rock and roll, not necessarily like the most technically proficient voice on the planet, but like perfect, like exactly has character, exactly what you want from a singer in a band. Yeah. To me he sounds like if uh like an alternate reality version of, of Tim Armstrong's vocal. Mm. If, if maybe it, it had not gone so punk and had been more, uh, more of a crooner. Interesting. So if operation Ivy, that band was over and instead of rancid, he's like, I'm going the ska route. Yeah. Or the ska soul route kind of ska soul route. Ah, oh. oh, I see. We, we've, we've put together a few timelines and, and now it's all my, my brain is like expanding right now. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about your song State House from your new album, which um, I think is maybe one of the best slacker songs in your entire catalog. Mm, thanks. And I know this song has, um, well, there's history in the song, but it has a long history in terms of how it evolved into the song that's on the, the newest record. So 
I don't know. I don't know exactly how you want to approach this. I mean, maybe we can just talk about the song in its current state. Yeah, it's got like it's got like I, I like that it's his, like it's like you learn from it. It's like a yeah, it's a, hist- a history lesson. Yeah, I mean, I always appreciated when they might be giants would uh, write a song where you would like come <laughs> away with a little bit of like history. Um, I feel like this song does that, and, and it's in your in your way. Yeah, it's it's not exactly Istanbul uh, was Constantinople. <laughs> <laughs> But I don't think everyone realizes that um, the Confederacy and the Confederate flag and and the and the statues, like they were, a lot of them came up and were erected in the '60s during the civil rights. That, that you know, I don't think a lot of people realize that. Yeah. How what, to what degree they were symbols of hate, specifically, not just like because there's the line in your you say I used to think it was just history, but then I learned the whole story. I mean, I think that's yeah. That's kind of the essence of, of what you're talking about in this song. It's really, it's quite autobiographical so far as my discovery of, of the whole situation. Because when we first started traveling uh, down into the South, you know, in the early days of the Slackers even, um, you know, of course you strike out there and you're kind of willing to learn about the world. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. Well, this is interesting. You know, like here we are, we're in South Carolina or we're in Georgia or wherever, Florida. You're learning about things that you like, like, oh, wow, yeah, things, uh, things are different down here. And we would see these um, bumper stickers that had Confederate flags, and it would say, like, um, heritage, not hate, you know? Yeah. And I would say to myself, well, okay, cool. That's fine. That's no, no sweat, you know? But the, the slackers are full of historians. Um, and so it wasn't long before somebody pointed out to me that it was like, oh, yeah, it's not that they've been flying them ever since the civil war, you know? And I was like, no, nah, that can't be no, you know, because <laughs> I, I want to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. And I also know how it is in like in my, you know, Northeast culture, my, you know, a lot of people come to New York, not understanding the little details about, <clears throat> you know, what we refer to or our little cultural things. And, um, yeah, I, um, I went back and I started looking at it and I was like, oh, okay. Like this is like, there is a real story here. And as I started, um, I mean this, as you were saying, this song has gone through a couple of different, uh, it went through a couple of different versions. One that started with Rancid when it, when it was a news story, it was actually a news story that, that it was like, why is South Carolina flying a Confederate flag in the two thousands? What is going on? you know? Um, yeah. And so there you go. I went from there, you know, it, the Rancid song didn't quite turn out to be on that topic only. It kind of turned into another, another kind of a song, which is like, you know, more about general conspiracy and distrust, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. In Rancid, we were all reading, uh, we were all reading conspiracy books back when it was still a punk thing, you know, before the, (laughs) before the right wing stole it from us, you know? (laughs) Yeah, sort of the anti-government conspiracies. Yeah, that used to be our thing. That used to be a punk thing. When I when I came up yeah. in the punk scene in um in New York in the Lower East Side, when I first came into the punk scene, they were all going crazy about these um, Tompkins Square riots that had happened, and um, you know how the the local governments had conspired against the community, and uh, it was very government distrustful. And there were there was a bookstore called um, uh, Sabotage. And in that bookstore, you could find every possible conspiracy book and magazine article and 
you know, they would have meetings about like the JFK assassination. You know, it was really, it was us, it was punk, you know? And then to, to see it now kind of taken away from us and, and turn into QAnon or whatever, it's like really makes, uh, kind of makes everything weird, you know? Yeah, definitely. The song was originally called Wrongful Suspicion. It was on the Life Won't Wait, Rancid album, 98. Mm-hmm. My first question actually is, um, who, how did the songwriting of this work? Did, was it, did you write it for them? Did you and Tim Armstrong like sit down and write it together? Well, we had been doing demo sessions around then. And uh, they had gotten to know the band and some of us characters because we'd been touring with them. Um, they, as auxiliary musicians, you know, we had, uh, Dave Hilliard was touring as a sax player. Um, Jeff Baker, Django, he was playing trombone. A couple of the other guys from his scene, uh, I think Elwood Hussey, the guy that played in Stubman All-Stars, they had come on and at different times and we, and we were like the horn section and I was the organ player. And, uh, so we got comfortable with these guys, you know, we got to know their musical tastes and, you know, funny enough, we all have a lot in common, even, even guys like Dave and stuff that you would think Dave was more jazzy or whatever, but he also likes, uh, stiff little fingers in the clash, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, we all had a lot in common musically and we, we were talking about things or whatever and ideas would come up, but we play each other ideas. It was pretty natural. I wouldn't say that it was like a situation where you'd be like, uh, you know, I mean, okay, we would do sessions, but we, we would also just show each other tunes, you know? When you're showing each other tunes, how are you doing this? Just pulling out an instrument and playing it for each other or passing tapes or CDs back and forth? Yeah. Like I think, um, in the bus that I was on with them, they always had guitars laying around and we even had a little recording set up in the back. It was very, uh, hi-fi for the nineties. It was like, uh, some eight track (laughs) digital thing that, that was like the size of a VCR, you know, like nowadays you could do it on your phone. Sure. You know, it was like, oh man, this is the best. We can make demos in the back of the bus. And, um, (laughs) yeah, so we'd sit back there and play and we'd like work on tunes. And I think that's where we all got comfortable with each other to the point where, you know, Tim was like, Hey, I'm working on the, on some new tunes. I'm working on a new record. You want to come and hang out with me? We'll get a little band together because like all of Rancid doesn't want to do it. Like, and I'm just the songwriter. I'm like one of the songwriters. So like we'll hang out. We can not, you know, swap ideas. And it was great. It was this great session with me and Tim and Josh freeze, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Josh Freeze, but he's like a legendary uh, the guy from the Vandals. Yeah. Yeah. He was Vandals. He plays with Devo. He's like, uh, he's like a ringer of, of all, you know, kind of like, I would say beyond punk. He's just like one of those bizarro guys that just has magic in his, in his hands, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, a bit like Aura, like in a, in a way he reminds me of, because it's like, he kind of crosses genres. You don't necessarily know what he's going to come up with. Yeah, so we were doing these sessions, and yeah, I think wrongful suspicion. I think that I had the the hook line. The you know, I heard they found a Confederate flag down at the state house, and then um, I started writing verses off of it, just kind of like on my, you know, my my angle, and then Tim wrote a verse, and then Laws wrote a verse, and then we each had a verse, you know, and um. And of course, then when you do that, it comes out to be a different kind of a song, you know? Yeah. But it was cool because it was all about not trusting the government and about how like, you know, 
you know, you can't, you can't be sure what's going to happen when you go down to the state house. They got a, they got a position for me on the floor, you know, down at the state house, you know, (laughs) (laughs) where were you coming from, um, with your, the lyrics that you were bringing to it? Like where, where was your head at? I thought it was particularly insulting that, that this, this flag thing was happening. And so I was kind of trying to, um, come at it from a, more of a racial and historical kind of thing, but I'm not even sure that my lyrics po- pointed at that, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's the way that the song got written. We had a lot of songs like that where, you know, they would just come at it with a, a certain vibe. And like, I mean, obviously those guys have a, have a vibe when it comes to lyrics, you know, mm-hmm. they, um, <clears throat> Rancid isn't like, isn't a particularly, um, I don't know. They, they don't necessarily write about, politics too often they do once in a while like i think when they 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 had a couple of songs that were really specific but it's usually about the culture of punk rancid mm-hmm. you know they kind of they kind of do a lot of things about like oh this is what punk looks like and feels like and the people that we know in it you know yeah i mean i don't know i guess i'm generalizing but no i, I think that that checks out yeah when we went back and started i it was one of those songs that i always felt i had a particular claim to because i had the most I had the most songwriting on that song, you know, even though it like, yeah, <laughs> it really wasn't my, it, like, I think in the end we, we all split it three ways, but it was like, it was my song, my melody, my chords, my, my chorus. And I always felt like we, we had a particular claim as the slackers to play it. I thought, Oh, this is really cool because, uh, you know, I really, we really can play this song and it really is a slackers song feel wise, you know? And then um, mm-hmm. when we went back to do the record recently, uh, it just seemed natural that the, the time and place that we were at historically, that they, they were over there knocking down Confederate statues and, you know, BLM was in full swing. And uh, I thought, oh, well, it's a perfect moment to actually write the song, like actually really write the song. And mm-hmm. history's changed since the song was engendered originally right because back then it was like i hear they fly a confederate flag and when i went and looked up the uh the, the story it, it was actually in 2015 um they had taken it down an activist had had gone up and taken the flag down and then it never went back up because uh law was passed immediately after that uh kept it down and i don't know if it was concurrent or whatever the situation was but it was cool. And I was like, Hey, wow, I could actually make a different song out of this, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, initially, yeah, the the slackers recorded it in 2018. And if I, if I'm not mistaken, the 2018 version is the same lyrics. Yeah. But musically it sounds a lot like, um, the, the version on the new album, but it's lyrically the same as from 1998. Yeah. Yeah, we were we were come trying to come up with some ideas. I mean, always the slackers are always trying to come up with clever ideas for material, and I can't remember what the situation was, but I just thought, hey, you know, like why don't we finally do this? Like we got a moment. Like let's actually do this, and you know, I'm I think we're allowed to play this song. I mean, I I don't think anybody would, you know, honestly. I mean, I I didn't go through any specific channels, but I mean, I don't think anybody would argue with me that I wrote the tune. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, we played it. We sent it. We sent it to uh, Hellcat. They loved it. They were cool. Um, and it was fun. It was like whatever. But when we started 
we started hanging around during the quarantine and recording, that's when the light bulb went off. And I was like, oh man, like, hold on a second. Like I could actually, we could have a, a victorious kind of song here. Like while they took down that Confederate flag at the state house. Yeah. yeah. You know, and actually have like a moment of affirmation, you know, instead of always just complaining at everything, right. Which is also in the song. It's a lot of complaining, but it's, it's a good affirmation. It's like, Hey, that, that happened. We, and now we can talk about real facts and real history. And mm-hmm. it was great for me too. Cause I, I had to make sure I got my facts straight. I wasn't going to sing a song and uh, <laughs> all of a sudden somebody's going to pull it, the rug out from under me and say, Oh, well, you know, that's not exactly the truth. I really did have to go read a lot. And in the midst of reading, I got all this new perspective on it too. And it really, you know, yeah, it changed the whole thing for me, you know? What was what was some of the new perspective you got as you worked on the the the, the final version of the song? Well, the the thing that I didn't realize was that the year that it went up was 1961, and that 61 was like a pivotal year for civil rights. That this was this was the year when it went from being a black movement to being a full society movement. Um, I listened to this really interesting online i think it was like an npr article it might have been it might have been an interview with people but it it was all these people that they started reading about the civil rights movement and they were like oh i can do something like you know there were people from all over the country that were hearing about it and they were like they had this calling to be like oh i need to show up like this is something that's happening right now in my world and i as a white person or as a person that's not from that state or whatever the case is, I need to show up and be there. And that's when the whole Freedom Riders thing started, where people started riding the bus as a protest to say that they would ride the bus in the wrong spot or that they would ride the bus on certain routes where, you know, people, people would be, um, you know, doing everything from, yeah, sitting in the front of the bus to like uh, stopping at, at uh, lunch counters in bus stations and sitting in the wrong section, you know? Um, and these people were showing up. The One of the guys that was interviewed was uh, a guy that was in seminary. He was like, um, a, you know, going to be some kind of Methodist minister. There was a couple of college students. There was a nurse. And these were people that just showed up and, you know, some of them got killed, actually like the you know they were talking about the people that they showed up with and some of them didn't make it you know uh, Martin Luther King was telling them don't go on this trip like you're going to die like you're not going to make it out of Mississippi and it happened you know so it, like when i read this stuff i was like oh my god this was like really really heavy you know and the fact that we had um uh a relic from this really crucial moment in history that was actually, you know, I could sing about, you know, and, and tell a story that was, that was really, you know, it was current, you know, and it is current right now, you know? Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Um, the people that oppose the protest of this stuff, they always say stuff like, well, why do these people have to resort to violence? Why not peaceful protest and blah, 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 like Martin Luther King. But it's like peaceful protest in the sixties meant, specifically agitating racists and people that hate you with the knowledge that there's they're very likely to be violent to you mm-hmm. and to take it 
So it this idea that peaceful protest is like this like oh yeah literally peaceful thing. It's not peaceful. You're you're like you are like inciting people with hatred to come after you. And that's why it was effective because it showed it showed how how hateful these people were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the the whole the freedom riders stuff. I mean, you could write. I mean, there's there are books and stuff on it. It's it's intense. I mean, I think what happened is is that at that time there was a discrepancy between federal and state law or something, or you know, the it, there was a sea change happening, but it wasn't happening on the level of uh, of local laws. Yeah, and so people were challenging this stuff, and they're like, hey, you know. It the the world is changing. It's kind of like like all the things that are happening with um, you know, with the gender stuff and with the the stuff that happened with with the um the gay movement. You know, like it's gonna change, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's changing. Culture is changing, and everybody can can complain and they can say what they want and say, oh, we should pass laws. But uh, you know, there's there's kids being born right now that are never gonna know the world in the way that those old guys saw it. They're just seeing the world as it is now. You know, I have little nieces and stuff like that. They're just growing up with much more open minds than we we grew up yeah. with. Oh you know, yeah. The world yeah. is different. They don't even see they don't even see gender the way we saw it. They don't even see uh sexuality the way we saw it. They don't see race the way we saw it. You know, nobody. They don't see culture, the ethnic differences. They don't see you know so many things and and it's funny cuz I talk to my uh my younger friends and I, I see, I see how it changes in, uh, you know, in gradation, like as the years go by, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One, I mean, one thing I've noticed about the slackers is that y'all seem to be a little bit more tapped into being forward thinking than some of the, some of the other band members, the same age as y'all. Why do you think that mm. is? Why, why are why are the slackers kind of the ones that are more open to change? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, if you ask me, and I mean, I I may have rose colored glasses on, but I kind of feel like we live in a we live in a kind of a charmed world. The, the slackers and all my the scene that I live in, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's generally pretty open minded, pretty progressive. Uh, you know, ska and reggae. I mean, is a beautiful scene because right there in the foundation is an anti-racist and, you know, multicultural stance, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things that attracted me to it in the first place, right? It was, it was cool because it had all these things built into it. I think we're just more vocal about it. I think we are lucky, you know, we got guys like me and Dave that right out of the gate were willing, you know, we, we showed each other our songs, you know, I was talking about, showing people your songs you know dave and i showed each other our songs we were like oh hey hey wow you you're talking about the same things like wow this is cool you know like (laughs) nice hey you write a song like that cool you know and uh, like i also remember asking the band a few times when it comes to stuff that might be a little a little dodgy i'll ask them hey is it okay to to sing a song about this like is it is it okay you know are you guys cool with me calling somebody out or saying something that's whatever. And I would say 90% of the time, 99%, you know, massive majority of the time, they're always totally like, oh yeah, of course. How could we not say that? That's cool. You know? That's rad. 
I was reading on a, a, a Reddit post about State House mm. that uh, some of the fans in the South were saying, like, you know, over the last couple of years, you know, when you guys have toured through and played that song, that you were not at all like trying to, you know, tiptoe around it. You'd be really upfront and blunt about the content of the lyric, and you're in the, you know, you're in Confederate country. You're not. Yeah. And so I'm curious, like, what has that been like? Well, I think we learned over the years, I mean, because it, there there always is going to be people in the crowd that disagree. I mean, I remember one time early on in the, in the Trump years, um, you know, saying something that seemed completely like obvious and that no one in the world could possibly disagree with, uh, somewhere like Las Vegas or somewhere. And, uh, People told me, oh, you should have seen the guys that stormed out of the back. They just left. They're, oh, forget it. We're out of here. <laughs> you know, and I don't know if they were just in the casino and happened to wander in or if they were Slackers fans that, you know, somehow missed the fact that we take a stance on some things that are kind of, you know, <laughs> progressive or whatever. <laughs> We've maybe thought, you know, for whatever reason. And yeah, sometimes I'm like, okay, that's going to happen. And we're definitely going to talk to people that, don't know where they stand and it's a matter of it's a matter of not preaching at people but it's a matter of stating facts and opening up a conversation i think that's mm-hmm. what i always appreciated from my punk bands was here's the facts you don't like the dead kennedys or something you know here's the facts here's a situation go what do you got to say you know i want to go from your early days like go into slackers before Slackers, you were in a band called Sick and Mad. <laughs> yeah, still, still, still Sick and Mad exists. Still, I know, it, the band continued, <laughs> uh, but it predates the Slackers. Um, it's a punk rock band. Yeah. And the band, I think, but the, the formation of Slackers kind of comes through Sick and Mad, right? Because you and Marcus were in this band. Yeah, yeah, me and Marcus met in this band. So what happens? How does Slackers happen? Um, the funny thing was, I was in a couple of bands at that time that, loved to practice and didn't like to play gigs. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> they got it backwards. <laughs> I know that there are right. There are bands that are like this. It's all about the practice. And uh I agree. I mean practice is fun, you know, and especially back then you get to know your instrument, you get to know how to play with people. But I knew that I wanted to take it out and see what you know the world thought of it, you know. And uh it wasn't like we were going to play big shows. We were literally going to play these little showcase gigs to 15 people in, you know, some bar that has 20 bands on in a night. You know, it's nothing, nothing fancy. Um, but Marcus was into it. And the drummer from the other band that was called the Rabies, he was into it. And uh, both of those bands were kind of like semi-disintegrating at the time, particularly the Rabies was was really falling apart. And so I um I just took Marcus and this uh and the old drummer Luis and I said, "Hey, let's just take the gigs that the other gig, the other band is going to miss. We'll just pick up those gigs and we'll figure out a band and we'll just go play." And uh that was really it. It was just all about playing live. Like we didn't even have much of a repertoire. We just played a lot of covers and a few songs that I had written that were really easy. Was this the first ska band? That you were a part of? Well, uh, the Rabies was actually a kind of a 
they were like practically a third wave, uh, if you were going to say third wave at the time. I don't think it even existed. But they were coming out of the New York um, kind of revved up fast reggae uh, tradition that had, that had kind of happened in the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, it was ska, but it was really, it was just super speedy reggae and and dubby stuff. And and that was the band I was in called The Rabies. We didn't really do much at all. I think we put out a couple of demo tapes. And uh, yeah, like I said, those guys never wanted to play shows, you know? Um, so yeah, that was, that was my entree. You specifically wanted to start a ska band then? I... Or were you just kind of open to whatever? I wanted to play. I, I honestly, I, <laughs> I wanted to play bass in a in a blues band. Probably, I thought it was the easiest way <laughs> to get on stage because it seemed like there was a lot of blues guitar players and not a lot of blues bass players. <laughs> <laughs> just plug yourself into that hole. Yeah, I was like, I can do this. I'm good at this, you know. And of course, meeting Marcus, it was like, okay, well, now I got a bass player. And Marcus always tells this story about how I um I showed up at his at his living room, you know, and we're hanging out. And I said, Hey, Marcus, what do you think about, uh, playing ska and reggae? Like, what do you think? Like, you want to be in a ska band? And, um, it was, it was maybe a similar idea as the, as the blues bass thing, you know, there was a hole and I thought nobody's not that many bands are doing this. There's only a few bands and all the bands from the eighties that I knew had kind of quit. They turned into funk bands and, you know, progressive rock or, you know, new R&B or something. And everybody had kind of given up on it. And uh, it was like us coming into a, a, a world that was, I mean, the only two bands were, there was the Scofflaws and I think Mephiscopheles had just started about the time we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was really the Scofflaws. That was it. Do you remember the first Slackers show? Um, actually, it was just walking through Manhattan recently and I walked by the original venue that I think we played our very first show as what would be the Slackers. I don't know what we called ourselves that night. <laughs> what was that venue called? Do you remember? It was at the time it was called the space of chase and it had a, um, it had a gangster on the front uh, logo and it had like a, a guy with a mach- with a Tommy gun. Mm-hmm. And I thought it suited us very well. I was like, God, oh, this is good. This kind of suits our, you know, our aesthetic, you know? And uh, they used to have a lot of ska nights there, actually. They would have uh, DJs and mm, bands from out of town would come play because Boston had a few bands. I think Philly had a band. You know, there was like, there was the remnants of a ska scene kicking around. Yeah. Um, and I think we played, we opened for somebody that night. It may have been the the hi-hats from from Philly or DC or something like that, you know? What's that space now? Well, when I walked by recently, it looked like it had still been a bar, but now it was closed. So, oh. and it didn't look like it had been closed for a long time. It looked like maybe it was a COVID casualty. No, oh. um, I think it had remained a bar and kind of a cheesy, like a cheesy bar for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> didn't have the Tommy guy, guy Tommy gun guy on the front. No, anymore. no, no. <laughs> space of Chase had had gone long, long gone since then. Gotcha. When uh, we had uh, Dunya Best on the podcast, she uh, talked about meeting you guys when in your early days, and she kind of described you as being kind of beatniks and hippies, and that uh, one I can't remember who, maybe Marcus or Luis had a, congas and everything, 
is this an accurate uh, picture of early slackers? Yeah, it was definitely a ragtag bunch. I mean, uh, <laughs> Marcus had a big Marcus had a big long ponytail, and was uh, it was you know he would often don some floppy, some floppy kind of hippie looking hat. Yeah, we we were we were ragtag. I mean, I was trying to be a kind of ska uh, aesthetic, I guess, from what I had seen around. But I was pro- I was probably looking a lot more like Huckleberry Finn than I was looking like a skinhead, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dunia was at those shows. She she played at, at the Space of Chase with us. We have footage somewhere mm-hmm. recently. It 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 came up. Uh, I think that may have been why it was on my mind. How many shows uh, did she play with you guys? Uh, it was a few months. I mean, we we were pretty we were pretty busy back then. So. Um, we were playing three and four shows a week, probably, um, if if we could, you know. And that was just in the New York area, just different bars around New York. Um, yeah, she probably played, yeah, for a, f- a few months with us, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was really early, yeah, it was a primordial stew of of what would become the Slackers. I mean, we would have rappers come up and, and rap with us. Um, we would have... Uh, a whole section of hippie drummers that would show up every once in a while and just start playing chaotic drums with us. <laughs> I mean, it was insane. I mean, we were like definitely of the time in New York in the early nineties. We fit right in, you know? Yeah. I've listened to some early recordings like demos and it's interesting because musically not really recognizable to the slackers we know today, but your voice is like, virtually the exact same like i'm mean, aside from the fact that you're a better singer now <laughs> you, you, it's it's interesting like people's voices change over time your the sound of your voice is sounds the same when you were just a, a teenager or uh, your early 20s or however young yeah, you were yeah, yeah. that's interesting yeah but and, and you sound old too that's i think the the part that kind of cracks me up listening to these demos <laughs> Like I don't picture a young guy singing. That's funny. That's actually funny. Yeah. Did you like? Did you think about singing as a craft, or have like influences, or was it just something that you did? Like, like this is just how I sing, and I just sing. Yeah, actually, I mean, um, I never wanted to be the singer in the band. I mean, that's like, you know, you may have heard me say that in other in other places, but we were looking for singers, and you know, I. I was happy to be the a, a songwriter, and I was very happy to be a rhythm section player. And I, as I always am, um, we just could never find anybody that really could sing the tunes and get the melodies right, or they would have a great look, but they wouldn't quite sing in tune, or they couldn't keep their note with harmony. You know, you, they would slide into all the other harmony notes. Mm. And so it was like after a while, I ended up singing a lot of the songs. It it it, it really happened by accident. There was even uh, our old guitar player TJ used to sing like we would kind of sing all together some songs. And you can hear on the early recordings, um, his voice is big in the in the mix sometimes, you know. And um, yeah, it's just it's funny. It was really totally accidental and. Uh, I'm actually shocked to hear that my voice sounds the same. <laughs> <laughs> I think like one of the things, I mean, one of the things I've always liked about the slackers is that, so your voice reminds me of someone like Van Morrison or Mick Jagger. Mm. It's not, 
it's not the kind of voice you typically hear in ska, but you hear it in like rock and roll and you hear it in like soul music more. So it's kind of like there's like a there's like a tattered sort of quality to it. And and it's it's a cool aspect to slackers that really sets you apart from other bands in the genre. To me, it always makes you guys seem punk, even though you're not punk at all. Yeah, well, it's I almost said it before with the other part of the conversation, you know, I mean, the slackers attitude is the attitude of a punk band. Totally. You know, we act like a punk band, even though we don't play, you know, mm-hmm. in quotes, the punk music. We're, we're playing, I mean, you know, the, the, the whole, the band is basically a, a punk attitude, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But that's nice. Thanks for the Van Morrison and the, um, <laughs> Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Happy, happy to, <laughs> I'd rather, I'd rather sing like those guys. I mean, they, they're perfect in their imperfection, you know, those, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's something, there's something about being not exactly perfect that makes, you know, art great. Yeah. Particularly Mick. He's very imperfect, but he's so great. Yeah. You know, it's fun. It's funny. I, I think one of the things I, I had a really high voice for a lot longer than a lot of my friends, like people's mm-hmm. voices started changing. And I remember I had this kind of choir boy voice for a lot longer than than a lot of folks. And I remember um, thinking to myself, well, I'm not even going to sing harmony in a band. I'm not even going to sing backups until my voice really gets kind of throaty and crusty. And I, I, I really did wait quite a while before I opened my mouth. So I mean, that being said, you know, I don't know if you can imagine the, <laughs> the before my voice dropped, you know, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> The band, there's a there's a there's a good period of time when the slacker starts before you release your first record, which was um better late than never. Yeah, appropriately. Ninety six on Moon Records. I know that there's like development happening. There's members. You're kind of solidifying the band. W- what is this period like for you guys? Well, yeah, those early days, like I'm saying, uh, we tried everything. You know, um, we didn't have the horn section for a long time. Dave and Dave and Mush our old trumpet player, they kind of showed up about two or three years in. We were definitely coming from uh, the two-tone influence yeah, and rock and roll and punk that was happening and, and rock and roll and punk that was happening in, in New York. Um, we were f- playing around with a lot of things. You know, we... Um, we had such a weird variety of songs. It was one of those bands that, you know, you could never tell what the next song was going to be, you know? Like, <laughs> next song might be a country song, and then the, the the next one would be like, sound like Dead Kennedys, and then the next one would be like, you know, The Cramps or something, or a Ramones cover. Um, but, but the thing that we'd always come back to is that we liked the ska beat, and we were discovering it together, all together as, as a group you know, mm-hmm. and different guys would discover some detail about it. And they'd say, oh, did you ever notice that the bass always does this? Or like, hey, did you notice that the drums, they really just hang out here and then this is actually what they do? You know, because nobody had figured out yet in the greater, you know, zeitgeist, the, the, the greater collective uh, uh, unconscious, you know, of, of music. Nobody had figured out how to play it right yet. You know, we, we just had heard tidbits of it. Mm-hmm. And didn't actually know that the drums are supposed to do this, the bass is supposed to do this, the guitar does this. You know, it was like rumors you'd hear. 
You know, somebody would tell us, oh, hey, we heard that the guitar, don't play an upstroke, play a downstroke. Like that's where you get the real sound, you know, or, um, you know, the things about the organ bubble, like it would be like, no, it's, it's choppier than you think. Like it sounds like it's mushy, but it's actually really choppy. Like listen close. And so we'd all sit there and like crowd around these, like, you know, our little box radios with their crappy speakers and try to decipher what the hell was going on in these songs, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I've I've talked to bands that come from like that, so late eighties to nineties, you know, wanting to play the traditional or play like Jamaican influenced ska, and I hear that a lot. Like you don't really know, you can't listen, you can't listen to uh, Scottalite's original records and really make it out. But when the band reforms and starts playing live and starts recording new studio records, totally different story. Yeah, now you can actually hear what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, right. It's not the mush of everything onto the one microphone in the room, you know? Was that, was it like that for you? I mean, was there anything totally significant, like, like Scottalites, you know, reforming or anything like that, that really was like a light bulb to understanding ska? Well, I mean, we were lucky that we had them in our city. So yeah, you, you could see the Scottalites. I would see them sometimes twice a month. You know, I'd see them week after week. Sometimes they had a residency at one point, uh, did they have a residency? They were playing at this at this TGI Fridays um, on like Fifth Avenue. I, I can't remember what the place was called, but like it was a tiny little bar room and you could stand next to whoever you wanted. I remember one time I stood behind Lloyd Nibb and watched him all night and just studied his his drumming. Other times I would stand, you know, by the, the guitar and the keyboards and be like, huh, what are they, what are these guys doing? You know? And of course, you know, that's only, that style is only one aspect of what we, we wanted to do in a very 90s, uh, you know, in a very 90s sensibility. <laughs> you know, we wanted our music to de be described by a long list of genres. We wanted to be like, you know, <laughs> oh yeah, it's funk, new wave, punk, disco, you know, goth, this, you know, it's like the more names you could have, the more genres you could have in the list of your description, the cooler you were, you know? <laughs> It's so funny. Like in in theory, I mean, I, in theory, I get it. Like, oh, how, how, if you're good at like, if you can play more than one genre, obviously that's that much better. But in in reality, you have to be amazing. You have to be like Fishbone, or you have to be a yeah. band that's actually able to play all those genres in order for it to actually be worth doing. Yeah, yeah, and even a band like Fishbone. It it kicks them in the ass. It bites them in the ass, right? Oh, it it's not necessarily good for their career, but yeah. in terms of like just appreciating a band, where it's like, okay, well, that band, that band can actually do these different styles. Um, I'm sure they would be much bigger if they if they honed in their sound and were able to be like, this is who we are, and, and it's very simple and stuff. But yeah, that's just not who they are. Well, one of the classic bands for that at that were you know, co comrades of ours, brothers in arms was Skinner box. Uh, yeah. And that was, that was the old, um, you know, pre stubborn all stars. That was the Jeff Baker band. And, um, Skinner box had the ability to do that. I mean, you would see them from one night to the next and, you know, they might play an all funk set. You know, um, I remember one time when I saw them, they were, they had filled in because somebody couldn't make it and they did a opening, uh, slot for the Scatolites. And they played all tr all trade ska set, you know, huh. and it blew my mind. I was like, wow. I was like, I am going to see this band everywhere. 
And I went to see them later that week somewhere, like Continental Divide. And yeah, all they played was funk. And then at some point, Rock T jumped up and did like a dance hall set with them. And I was oh, like, wow. what the hell? Where's the trad sky? I wanted to see you guys do the thing you did the other night. And they're like, oh, what are you talking about? We did that because we're open for the Scatolites, man, you know? Um, and it was bands like that because there was a few of them around. But it was bands like that that made me decide in the Slackers that we were going to have to hone our 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 focus. And we were not going to be one of these bands that would be successful playing every style of music. We should pick a couple, get real good at them, and people would know what they were coming to see. You know, and if we and if we wanted to have a punk band, well, we'll do that and have another band. You know, if we want to play a different sort of music, we'll have that band. But the slackers, we should decide what it looks like, what it sounds like. And um at a certain point the band I don't think it was a popular consensus in the band. I think I really pushed it and maybe one of the other guys. And we were like, yeah, it's smarter. That way people know what they're going to get. And, you know, obviously, yeah, obviously we're not going to play the same stuff every night anyway. Even if we, even we could, we couldn't at that point. It was a mishmash of insanity. Yeah, it was, it was helpful to think of it like, yeah, let's play kind of trad. Let's go for a 60s sound, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so 96, you have um, Better Late Than Never on Moon. Where, where do you feel like the band stands at this point? I mean, Ska's kind of getting more and more popular, both in New York and both nationally. Do you feel like you're, you're doing well in that scene, or are you kind of a lesser known band at this point? Yeah, we, we were always outsiders. You know, we never really, we never really, <laughs> um, <clears throat> we were never the popular kids. And so, like, we'd show up. We would do opening slots. We had a lot of bar shows and a lot of little community center shows and oddball gigs that we would get. And we had kind of, we had kind of gotten our own crowd in the New York scene. That wasn't really the, you wouldn't call them a ska crowd particularly. They were just Slackers fans. They were just weirdos from all different, I don't know. They were just people that would find us and they're like, yeah, hey, cool. I'm going to come check this band. Yeah. I think we only started getting a kind of a ska scene reaction when we left New York. We started to really, when we went to uh, Florida, we go to Florida a lot, um, Atlanta, Georgia, you know, places where there was like an active ska scene happening in the 90s and bands like the Pie Tasters and, uh, you know, Bim Scala Bim had toured and, you know, there was a lot of touring bands out there, the Toasters, there was all everybody, New York Citizens had been places and, and, People knew people knew about this this New York ska scene or this kind of ska scene that was happening, uh, and then we started to register on that. You know, people started to say, "Oh yeah, I like the Slackers." You know, in in some ways that helped on New York. I mean, in many ways it helped on New York status <laughs> because we come back to New York and people would say, "Hey, I heard that you you had a good show in Miami." You know, my my yeah. friend said my my cousin said that that you played great in Miami. Like, what the hell? Like, you, same band? You know. <laughs> <laughs> so we were talking about uh rancid and um i want to i want to get more into that because your next record red light is on hellcat which is tim armstrong's subsidiary label and epitaph um but the there's kind of a whole story about you guys getting on that label um now here's how i understand it you can kind of <laughs> chime in if i'm if i'm a little off base but yeah jeff kind of starts developing a jeff baker starts developing a relationship with tim 
he's doing some stuff with him. And then Tim learns about stubborn all-stars. You're, you're playing with stubborn all-stars. And uh, Tim says like, Hey, stubborn all-star stubborn all-stars should open for rancid, uh, in Europe. Yeah. That's the, that's kind of the beginning for you, right? That's the beginning. I mean, it was fun. It was so funny because we, we were all recording together, you know, stubborn and slackers and a bunch of different bands. We'd all hang out at this studio called Coyote. And literally, they got a call, Coyote, and they, they asked, does anybody know a punk trombone player? We're looking for a trombone <laughs> player for a punk band. Yeah, exactly. And that was the reaction. It was like, we don't know anybody. And then the guy at the studio went, oh, no, there's that guy that comes in here with the Stubborn All-Stars guy, Jeff Baker, and he plays with Murphy's Law. I yeah, mean, that's yeah. a punk trombone player. And they gave, they gave Rancid his number. And uh, Jeff played this gig. They, I think they played at, um, it was like one of the really big venues in New York. It's an old dance hall from the 40s. Uh, God, I can't remember it, what I'm thinking of now. But it's the, it's the song, you know, where he sings Standing on the Corner of 50, 52nd and Broadway. It's it's basically that place, 52nd and Broadway. And I remember I went with Jeff that night because I was curious about this Rancid band. I heard they had a Scob song. You know, I heard they had a two-tone song. And uh, I went in and I stood at the back and I watched Jeff run up on stage and play with them. And he slipped them a uh, Stubborn All-Stars record. <laughs> That's what you do. And that was it. Yeah, next thing yeah. you know, we get a call. Come come on tour. We need an opening band and you guys sound great. We want you to guys you guys come with us. And then, uh, you know, Schmoozerama began. You know, I, I said, hey, I, <laughs> I listened to your record, guys. I heard you had an organ on the record, but I don't see an organ player on tour with you, you know? <laughs> Guess what I do, you know? <laughs> what, what, how was the tour? Um, was it a good tour? Was how, how did Stubborn do? We did okay. We weren't exactly what everybody was looking for. And I'd say night to night, it was different. Uh, you got to remember, we toured uh, Europe and England with them in like 90... Five, something like that, 95, 96, something right around then. Yeah. 96, I think. Um, ska and reggae, people know about that stuff in England and Europe. So people have their opinions, you know. Um, some places we'd go, man, people would go crazy. They'd be like, we never heard a band like you for years. You know, the bouncers would, would go nuts for us. They'd, they'd be like, oh, mate, you, you sound just like the bands I grew up with, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and other places, the punks would spit on us the whole night and throw mm. beer cans at us. And I remember one time we played in a, in a gig in Wolverhampton, right? Which is like a big soccer town. And I mean, literally people were buying pitches of beer just to throw them at us. <laughs> it was unreal. It was unfucking believable. I came off that show. I was so I was drenched in beer and spit, <laughs> and I was like, I I never felt so disgusting. Like my suit, oh my god, it was a wreck. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that was the, the those were the tours we learned how to really live. You know, like on tour, it was like, okay, now you jump in the shower with your suit on. That's it. You know, you know, <laughs> lather it up. You know, <laughs> hand me the soap. Ugh. So not long after that tour, Tim invites uh, you, Jeff, David, 
I'm not sure if anyone else to to uh, go on Lollapalooza. Yeah, and I think that's where L. I think Elwood from okay Stubbin, and maybe maybe Danny Doolin too, the trumpet player, because I think they had some gigs. They really wanted a big horn section. They they were going for this thing on a couple tunes, which you know. So, do you remember what songs you guys came up for? Oh, they played about four or five ska tunes in the set. I think they were doing, you know, they were out doing the obvious, right? Time Bomb. There's a song called Daily City Train, uh, which I really liked. I want to riot. I want to riot. We we were in on writing that one. And the funny thing is, is um, Tim and the bunch, they, they all got approached for the for the tune. Uh, basically, Beavis and Butthead said, we love you guys. Uh, we want to have you guys in the movie. Uh, come up with a tune and we'll see if we can find a spot in the movie for a tune. And we happened to all be there. And so, of course, Dave and I went back to our hotel room and said, we have to be the ones that write the tune. So we, <laughs> yeah. we just start coming up with things like, okay, let's watch all this Beavis and Butthead. Let's think, what, what, what do they want to, you know, what do you think? Bebop? Uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, this thing. Oh, we'll do this. We'll do that. Minor key ska. Okay, this, whatever. And I remember it was, in the, it was one of those things we, we showed our tunes and, you know, I think we were off by a million miles, you know. Because the I Want a Riot tune was exactly what, <laughs> you know, it kind of fit the mood, you know. So um, I, I think it was David Hilliard was telling me that um, the Wu-Tang Clan were, were supposed to be on that track too, but they just didn't do it. And so, uh, which ended up like working out for you guys because there was just all this money that was going to go to the Wu-Tang that went to everyone else. Oh, is that the reason? Yeah, because I remember it was a really good paying gig. That was one of those things where Rancid <laughs> really came through for us, you know? I, yeah, you got you guys got Wu-Tang money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember we were, Wu-Tang was on that tour. And I, this was a funny, you know, the entree to, to my music life is these big tours, you know? Like I'm hanging out, I'm taking a bus with Metallica, I'm, I'm you know, eating lunch with Soundgarden, you know, like, it was a really like jarring change of culture for me, right? Yeah. And I mean, I was all thumbs. I was putting my foot in my mouth all over the place. How so? What do you remember? Oh my God. I mean, I would just say <laughs> stupid shit to everybody. I mean, I was like, <laughs> you know, I'm just a cocky kid from New York that like when I get nervous, I start to be kind of like moderately insulting, you uh. know? And, um, <laughs> you know, just because that's, you know, in a way it's kind of how we make, you know, Dare I say, it's how my friends make friends in New York, is to be a a, a kind of a shit to each other and see who can take it. And you you find out who wants to hang out, you know? It's not meant to be mean-spirited, but- No. Yeah, I remember one time I was hanging out with Wu-Tang. I I was nervous around them because they were obviously big shots. Something was going on. They, They had this kind of air around them, right? My sister had asked me to uh, get their autographs. Now, I didn't know what the hell they sounded like, and I had given up on hip-hop for years by then. I think the last thing I had listened to was maybe Cypress Hill, and honestly, when you're down with OPP happened, I I was like, yeah, hip-hop is dead. That's it. It's over, you know? (laughs) So um, I walked into their dressing room, and I asked um, Jeff Baker's old girlfriend, uh, I can't remember her name, off the bat, off. She walked in with me and I asked her to be kind of my like wingman for the situation. I said, could you, could you ask, could you say that you're my sister? And, uh, you know, just say, 
you know, this is my name and can you sign these, uh, could this poster for me? And you'll do me a big favor. I was like, because I'm just really nervous and I don't know how to ask people for an autograph for my sister. I feel like a schmuck, you know? And so she walks in and, and she says, oh, hey, Wu-Tang, you know, and they all turn around. It's this cute little girl. And um, she says, this is my friend Victor and he's really nervous to ask you guys for autographs. <laughs> so you think like you guys could do him a favor? And I was just like, oh, I was like, you you know, put me in the hot seat, you know? And then, so of course I started goofing around, you know? And I was like, hey, Wu-Tang, I never heard of you guys. Like, where are you from? Like, what's the deal? This and that, you know? And I, and I think I was like, so where, where are you from? I'm like, you don't sound like you're from California, but like, I'm not from New York and I never heard of you. So like, where, where are you from? <laughs> you know? And because I, I said, I know you're not from Uptown. And they were like, oh, we're from Staten Island. And I remember saying like, Staten Island? What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> That's not New York. That's New Jersey. You guys should just say from New Jersey. <laughs> you know? And it just started there and it ended at some spot where they were like, I think the last guy was signing my my thing and they were just like, all right, get the hell out of here before we fucking <laughs> smack you. Like, just shut the shut up, you know? I was like, what are these? I mean, what's your real name? Your name is your name Bob? Is it Frank? Henry? I mean, I got I got killer B guy, I got dirty guy, I got uh, method guy. I'm like, oh yeah, come on, my name's Vic. What's your name? Fred? Your name Frank? You know? Joey. I mean, I was a real smart. <laughs> so did you did you get all the autographs though for your sister? Oh, I got a lot of them. I think I think actually um <laughs> one of the guys wasn't there. And uh that was I one of the guys was getting really big. He, whoever it was at that time, whether it was I don't know, Method Man or Red Man or one of those guys. They were the guys that he was getting all the the spotlight and he was the one that was supposed to sing with Tim on the recording. Okay. And I think there was whatever was going on there was some political money shit or whatever. And I think that's why he wasn't around actually. He was they were having some heavy meeting or something, you know? Hmm. It was funny. It was funny times. I got to meet so many cool people. I got to meet Lee Perry on that uh one of those tours. Hmm. Lee Perry wrote my name down in his little book. I felt like somebody was writing my name <laughs> in the book of life, you know? It's like Perry's <laughs> Yeah. Scratch goes, he goes, hey, man, give me your number. If I need a, if I need a hog and player, I call you. All right. And he writes New York on top of it. And he writes Vic. And my number, I was like, this is the best. I can't believe this. You know? <laughs> Lee Perry's got my number. Aaron, do you remember at the Slacker show when, when you went back up to Vic to ask about doing this right now? And yeah. And gave him your number, but your number was already in his phone? <laughs> yeah. And it said, um, Aaron Scott Ryder. That's right. That's right. That is what you. That's what I was. I felt just the same way you felt about Lee Perry. I'm yeah. like, oh, there you go, Aaron Scott Ryder. It's in the cell phone of life. That's right. <laughs> oh, it's embarrassing sometimes when when you know I'm supposed to have called somebody or I say, oh, I, I would have texted you. I don't have your number, and then you know they give me the first like five digits and their name pops right <laughs> up, <in> there. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's you. Oh shit, you know. <laughs> Easy to do. Meet a lot of people. Yeah, it's true. I'm a, and I'm a bit of a space cadet, so. <laughs> so on, on the Lollapalooza tour, as I understand it, Tim was talking about the fact that, uh, you know, oh, I got this, I got this label, Hellcat, I'm, I'm, you know. Yeah. And you guys were just, you, you and Dave were just like hitting him hard, uh, campaigning 
for the slackers to be on on this new label. Oh yeah, is that is that what happened? <laughs> well, you got to understand. I mean, we had not we were coming from absolutely you know nothing, zero. Yeah, like you know the reason why it took five years to make that first record with Moon was because I mean there was just no money, there was just no opportunity. Yeah. And studios were as such back then, you had to pay a lot of money to go to a studio. It wasn't like now you record a demo on your computer or your cell phone, for Christ's sakes, you know? Yeah, it took money, you know? And to press records and CDs, all this took a lot of money. And so um, whenever we saw an opportunity, yeah, we would work it hard, you know? And um, I think I think Tim and and Laws and those guys, I, I, uh, Matt Freeman... <laughs> is a kindred spirit you know uh matt freeman is a ve- is very kindred spirit he knows about hustling you know and i think mm-hmm. i think he would laugh at us but at the same time he's like yeah man that's exactly what you got to do he's like i do exactly <laughs> the same thing he's like i i feel you 100 percent." and so yeah they were very sweet to us and very patient and i mean they're not that much older than us you know they just you know they're a few years older than us so they, they totally get it you know? So your girlfriend at the time, the Wix, mm-hmm. you got her to be on the tour at some point. What was the story there? Everybody's girlfriends were coming to visit at different times. And I remember, you know, I mean, I was out for like months, two months with them, three months. It was, it was some long tours. And I remember asking, um, you know, if it was possible, I said, you know, I don't expect to have the same treatment as everybody, but you know, Hey, would it be possible? My girlfriend is along the route. She happens to be here. You think she can hop on the bus for a little bit? And they said, yeah, sure. Why not? They said, you you know, you're cool. You're mellow. And um, <clears throat> at the time, I think it was, there was a, even the slackers do it now. There's a kind of a rule, you know, you can't have uh, somebody visit for more than, you know, four days or something. Because otherwise it kind of ruins the vibe, you know, gets mm-hmm. in the way. People suck getting pissed off. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it, it does make sense. It's practical. And I think with these guys, maybe it was a week. And uh, I remember she endeared herself so much to the band and particularly the bus driver, because I think she was cleaning the bus or something that when, when it came time for her to, to leave and I was quite, I was ready for it to, to be the end of, of the visit. Uh, the bus driver actually said, I would like to invite her as a guest, as my guest for the next week because she's been such a good guest and if it's okay with everybody, you know, you know, and everybody was like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, wow. Okay. That's really cool. Like I'm really happy. Everybody gets along with, with her so well. This is fantastic. And somewhere in that next week, um, yeah, you know, big checks had been coming in to, uh, for Rancid. They were having a hit record at the time, right? That outcome, the wolves was a hit record. Uh, they were making big money on tours. They had advances from licensing and all this crazy stuff. So Brett Gerwitz would show up once in a while and he shows up and he says, Hey, I got this great idea for an imprint. You know, you're a visionary, you're a personality, da da da. He says, Tim, here you go. What do you think? Um, next thing I know, they're having a meeting with my girlfriend. And she comes back and she says, I don't know what the hell happened, but you know, for some reason they think that I'm like, that I can run a record company. I don't know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> Did she have any background in any sort of work like this before that? She, she's one of these people that I don't know what it is about, her, but she's one of those people that goes to work as a, you know, um, 
you know, whatever, opening the the mail and they suddenly want to make a manager. Amazing. You know, she worked at a video store and she was like there, like cleaning up the video store. Next thing you know, she's managing three video stores. <laughs> she did work at Moon a little bit though, didn't she? Before then? Yeah. She had experience there. She had toured with bands. I think she had toured with the Toasters. She had toured with the Scatolites. She had done a bunch of stuff. She was in a fold of that that scene, you know? So it wasn't completely out of the blue. No, it wasn't completely out of the blue. I mean, she had she had instincts. She had she knew a lot of people. Um, she's a charmer, no doubt, you know. And especially yeah. back then, she was, you know, we were all, you know, our eyes were wide open, and you know, <laughs> charm was on, you know, a hundred percent. But it was funny. I was just like, wow, what do you what do you think? Like, what is that's crazy? And I understood that from a business perspective, it was also a good idea to hire somebody that wasn't. Tim himself to be the president and manager and everything, you know, he was the king and you, now you needed people to do management, you know? So it made sense. Okay, cool. She seems capable. She seems like everybody likes her. And as I said, she had managed to charm everybody that she came in touch with on the tour. So I suppose if you're starting a record company, you need one of those, you know? I mean, that's what I would say. So Hellcat gets going. She's, she's got this job. At what point do you get word that, okay, Slackers is going to be part of this? Is it immediately or is this, is there like an uncomfortable pause of a period of time where you don't really know? There was definitely an uncomfortable period. I mean, we had, we had played our stuff for the band and we had, uh, we had played our stuff for Tim and Brett. I mean, I was shopping stuff to Brett all the time. You know, I was like, Hey, sick and mad. I was like, Hey, look at this country tune I wrote. Hey, look at this. I got a play. I plays blues piano. Um, Nothing was really catching with them, you know? And I think what happened is they started to put together that um, Give Them the Boot, the first Give Them the Boot compilation. Oh, yeah. It was a genius idea, and you got to give Brett, you got to give the devil his due. Um, he came up with this great concept. We're going to do a compilation. It's not going to be just bands that are going to be on the label. It's just going to be a great comp. It's not going to be spe specific to a genre. It's just going to be everything... You know, it could be anything and everything, and we're going to sell it for five bucks. And that was it. It was a very general kind of, you know, here you go, boom, throw it against the wall, see what happens. And between, the Wix was the one that actually oversaw putting that together. She was, she picked, she basically put that whole record together. And guys would bring bands in. Laws had found bands like the Dropkick Murphys. Uh, Tim had a couple of bands that he knew. People were sending stuff in all the time. They were listening to cassettes and CDs. And she knew that some things were going to be on there. She's like, well, Scatolites are going to have a track, no doubt. She goes, uh, she'd been on tour with the Pie Tasters. She was like, Pie Tasters, I think they got tunes. I think they should have a track. Uh, Hepcat, you know, they're, they're the face and the sound of the new generation of the ska movement, right? Like that we were part of. Um, and then, of course, there was L.A. bands like Union 13 was going to be on or uh, that crazy punk band with Dwayne Peters. Uh, uh, U.S. Bombs. My God, what a great band, you know? So, like, <laughs> they were going to be on. I mean, it just made perfect sense, you know? And then somewhere along the line, she's like, I'm putting the slackers on, you know? And I think there might have been a moment, there might have been like a showdown moment where, like, you know, they said something like, the slackers? 
you know? <laughs> and she was like, look, you put the slackers on, otherwise I'm out. You know, something like that. And I think she really <laughs> came to bat for us. I think she was like, you don't understand these guys. I have faith. I believe in these guys. Like, I believe it. And I'm telling you, I see it. And they were like, well, I don't know what you're seeing, but I mean, I guess if you say so. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest is history. Yeah, the song the song on uh, boot, Give Him the Boot was uh, Watch This. Yeah. Which a good, that's a good song. I'd say a good introductory slacker song. Yeah, we were in the studio, like back to the whole thing about that we did everything ourselves. We had no money. We were recording Red Light before we had a record deal. We just knew that we wanted to make a record. You knew you weren't going to put that record out on Moon already, right? We we had no idea. We just knew we, we were ready to make another record. Mm. And we thought it's time to make a record. Uh, and we had saved up like five grand or whatever it was going to cost. <laughs> and uh, we had got some studio days and we were going to go in and we were already putting tunes down. And it was about that time that, that we got the call that was like, hey, we, we want a tune from you guys. And it was like, oh shit, they want a tune. They want a tune. Like, what do we got mixed? And we had Watch This and Fried Chicken were both mixed. And I think we sent them both and uh, Watch This was the one that she picked. So Red Light, Red Light to me feels like a big step up from um, Better Late Than Never. Like, I feel like it really captures the, I feel like it's a lot more bittersweet and moody. And I think that's kind of where you guys end up going with a lot of your music, especially these um, Hellcat records. Yeah. What, one song you got on that record, Rude and Reckless. Yeah. So here's a fun, funny, fun little side story. So we had Brian Fallon on the program. Yeah. So you know Brian Fallon's a fan, right? Yeah, yeah. I was actually I was just talking about him tonight with uh, one of the guys from Catbite. So we had him on. We're like, because he he was just going, "Oh my god, Slacker is the best band." Vic, Vic's an amazing songwriter. We're like, "What's your bet? What's your favorite Slacker song?" He's like, "Um, I'm gonna go with Rude and Reckless." Wow, because um, that song reminds me uh, of my of my father and my relationship to him. Interesting. So first, I want to ask you a little bit about that song, but also. What do you think of Brian Fallon? He might be out there listening. Uh, what, do you, what do you think of him as a songwriter? Oh, that's cool, man. I got to say, man, those those records that, um, what was that that one that was the real breakout, the 59 sound or something? 59 sound, yeah. That was that was the one where it was like, oh, okay, this they got something going on. Yeah. You know, they're onto something. How can I put it? The bands that I like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not genre specific when it comes to what I like, you know? I just like bands that that do something cool, and I like I like bands that kind of grab a little from column A, a little from column B, you know, uh, and then throw their own personality all over it. And I remember that's what I heard from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was getting that record was getting played by a lot of different friends of mine that didn't all share musical tastes. And I remember that that was the, that was always the marker for me of what is like a record, you know, like, oh, this is a good record. Like when Nirvana happened, like when uh, that, whole, that whole thing happened, you know, you heard, I heard that record around New York in every different place that I would never have expected it, you know? And it was the same with that 59 sound record. I kept hearing it and going, what is this? Who is this? Oh, what is this? Oh, it's that, it's that band again. Oh, geez, really? You know? Um, and then not to mention, I was living 
soon after I was living in New Jersey. And so I was practically uh, neighbors with, with him. You know, we, we, I think we lived about five blocks apart. Oh, yeah. But I did, not that we saw each other much. I think I saw him once or twice. And maybe we like, I think I may have lent him a delay pedal one time because he was, <laughs> <laughs> he needed something. And I was like, I happen to be, you know, five blocks away i think so like if you want to drop by or i can ride my bike down the block you know he's a sweetheart though i gotta say he's he i do get tweets and stuff every once in a while he'll he'll chime in on something and i'm like hey look at this (laughs) (laughs) uh rude and reckless uh i'd I'd love to know a little bit about um your thought process and, and when you were writing that uh lyrically Oh, like like many songs, these these things just kind of erupt out of me, you know. They're, uh, I think I was, I used to work with my father sometimes doing some funny gigs, and I remember my dad was my dad was a tough guy, and uh, I remember one time him saying, "Okay, look, we're gonna drive over here and like follow me, all right, but like just be safe, like don't do what I do, but like you know, but follow me, all right." And I remember him driving and I was like, Jesus Christ. I was like, this guy is a maniac. I'm like, D- you drive like a maniac. Like you have no fear, you know? And I remember thinking like, oh, this is my father. This is the guy. This is this is who I live with. This is a guy who tells me what it means to be a man. And maybe this is why I have such a problem with all this. <laughs> maybe this is why i'm so conflicted about what my masculinity looks like you know to when i when i compare you know and um you know he was a well-meaning guy and i I shouldn't say anything too bad about him because i know he tried real hard and and you know but his our our conversations always had to do with like well this is you know what you do when when you know you think you're going to get in a fight or this is how you stand when somebody looks at you like this well like wear this kind of jacket because it's intimidating you know my father was always comb your hair back it gives you a little height you know open your shirt show some hair on your chest you know yeah and so i can't i i think after like yeah i was i was hanging out with my dad with this following him as he was driving like a maniac and i think i was probably writing the song as i was as i was driving i was singing it to myself you know rude and reckless (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and of course I copped the line from the Clash, right? Because yeah, you want to be rude and reckless, you know, want to be crude and speckless. But uh, it just seemed to describe the him so much, you know. Yeah, it's a good song. I'll, I'll have to agree with Brian Fallon. It's definitely a, uh, one of the better uh, slacker songs. It's funny, you know. It when I think about crafting a song. I wouldn't put it amongst the best crafted songs. It's definitely one of those that, like I said, it kind of just erupts out of me. It, the the words just kind of fall out of my mouth. And I have, I had a, I think my notepad had a bunch of verses and a bunch of lines that weren't in any specific or particular order. And I think when I did the take, it's one of those takes where I just sang it as we played it. You know, I don't think I went in and, and did a overdub for it. Um, the, the words just kind of fall out how they fall. And, and it was very much, yeah, there's definitely some confused words in there. Every once in a while, I listen back to the song and I think, <laughs> what am I trying to say exactly? I'm like, oh yeah, that, 
you know, there's there's one line where I read about uh, Doris Day misquoted somebody. There's um there's an old saying, "He who hesitates is lost." I think, and it's it's said by somebody really old school. And Doris Day quoted it and said, "He who hesitates is last." Mm. And I always that was one of those particularly funny lines to me and i thought well yeah he who hesitates is last i was like i like that that for me that works for me <laughs> and i think that i'm even trying to say it in the song i said something like 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 good doris says da 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 and then i didn't get to that line but it doris's name doris day is getting ready to have like that line is getting ready to happen and it just doesn't happen so it's like <laughs> i always hear it and i know nobody knows that so you know after red light uh, the next record is The Question. So so this album comes out in 1998. So this is the same year as um, the Rancid record we were talking about, mm. the one with um, um, Wrongful Suspicion. Oh, yeah. This is uh, Life Won't Wait. Yes. So so this is all, like, you're talking about hanging out with them and songwriting and with them, and you're also working on this record at the same time, too? Is that... Is it all kind of happening at the same time? This was a good, yeah, this was a good year for me because creatively, just so far as studio work and, you know, I was, I was getting to see a lot of different angles of things. Like I was getting to hang out in real classic studios. Like uh, Rancid had been recording in um, Sunset Sound, like where the doors recorded and like, you know, Stevie Wonder, Prince, like they, these were big studios, you know? Um, I think I had gone to some other spots too with them in LA, like the old record plant or so, something really like some really big shot stuff. And so, um, when we went, we went back to our old familiar coyote studios, um, I had a different perspective on it. I suddenly appreciated things and I was like, you know, these are really, this is a really great studio. I'm like, you know, I've been, I've been there to the places that they say are like classic studios. I'm like, this is great. This is better than any place I've been. And, uh, I, I started to realize we could make a record. We could make records that sounded as good as anything we had ever heard, you know, Mm -hmm. um, throughout history. And I think this is, these are the moments, these are the things you learn as you go along. You know, when you when you start off, you think there's some sort of magic dust that gets sprinkled on everything and that they must go to some special place where everything sounds great and, you know, oh, it's all studio magic and it's all whatever. There must be some trick, right? Mm-hmm. And then you go to the place and you find out, oh, there's no trick. It's actually, it's you. It's it. This is it. The board, you've, I sat behind the board at Sunset Sound. That's the famous board that Prince copied and Stevie Wonder went and rebuilt that room to make it look exactly the way it looks in Sunset so he could have it in his place. I've been there and I, and I was like, oh, it's just us. We get to do this. We have the tools and we can make anything sound like we imagine. We too can make a classic record, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I think the question is when the, I realized that, and I think the band, some of the guys that had been with me, like Dave and, you know, we started to get the memo that we had the magic at our fingertips and we had these engineers that, my God, these, these guys, Albert and Mike Coyote from Coyote Studios were world-class, you know, um, we had them, 
and they were they were here for us. They were making it possible. And so that's why the question, there's all this double tracking vocals and there's cool instrumentation. There's some like, you know, little tricks. We 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 started to take liberties and have fun, you know, and be like, hey, we can really make a record, you know? Uh, what I like about the question, and, and I feel like this is true for like the Slackers live show, you know, these days, is even though it's like a record you can dance to, I don't feel like it's in any hurry. It's not, it's not in any hurry to get to where it's going. Mm. which is why i kind of feel like your show is like that too it's like your show is there's energy there's dancing but it's also not rushed at all yeah we don't want to be too uh i mean we want to keep our cool you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) dave is i gotta give dave a lot of credit on this stuff dave is um he understands the rhythm of things like if you listen to a, a dave solo like he's one of the guys in the band that can really take a long, long solo, many, many choruses, right? And that's, it's not based purely on his musical prowess because a guy like Glenn, for example, probably has more actual technique and more musicality, you know, in a very, cla- you know, classical um, definition of that, you know? But what Dave has is Dave understands the rhythm of how to grab somebody, of how to draw somebody in to the um, to your journey. You know? Yeah. I remember I remember hearing somebody say it because uh, I I had I had posed this conundrum to someone who I trusted, and they said, "Well, you know," they said, "With Glenn, we all kind of know he's going to make the basket." You know, like. You hear him hit that note, you know he's going to get it. Like you know, he's going to knock it out of the park, bam. But like Dave, it's like he's po- he's poised before the basket, you know, and you see him with the ball, you know, and he's just he's just you know, hair, 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 you know. It's like, oh, is he going to make it? Is he going to make it? You know, and he's like, he's there, and he's just about to make the shot, you know. And you like, everybody's watching, and. Dave knows somehow knows this and he gets everybody wrapped up in his story, you know? Yeah. I think Dave and I also spent a lot of time working on song orders for the records. I think we both learned how to write sets and everybody in the band learned how to write sets for the band, but particularly Dave, you know, and Marcus, they, they took it to a level of like, Oh no, this is, this is how we're going to present the story to the crowd tonight. You know, this is how we're going to mm-hmm. get there, you know? And, um, yeah, I got to give, I got to give credit, you know, where credit is due because me, I think of things maybe more like as an opera or something, you know, or like a Broadway show. It's not really going to be what everybody's ready for, but these guys think about danceability. They think about, oh yeah, you know, get everybody's attention, but then yeah, take it down. Be cool. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the wrongful suspicion. Um... I know you play on that track, right? You sing on it. Yeah, I sing. Actually, on the on the the rancid version. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I I am actually singing. I might be singing the main vocal in the chorus. Actually, the what can we do? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I I, I, I thought so. Yeah, yeah. Who else is on that? Because there's horns on it. Do you know who? Do you know? Remember who played on that that song? Uh, I believe Dave is on it. I think an old trombone player friend of ours that was in the slackers for a blink this guy squanch i think he plays on it um 
Yeah, that's all I know. It might have been some Boston's horns or something. I don't know. There was a lot of people coming in and out at that time. Did you get any other like co-writes with Rancid at that time that actually were re- released? Oh yeah, well that that record is. Um, I got uh, Hooligans was was my tune that they just wrote new words to. Life won't wait was my tune that again we, they wrote different words to and we kind of collaborated on some ideas. Yeah, State House, and I think there's another one on there too. That's what's the one? Oh, the Hooligans is with the Specials. Life won't wait is with Buju. And yeah, I don't know. It's three or four songs on there that I that I wrote with them. Mm. And I had a lot of stuff too that like it came out on um they put out like a demos like a a little you know rancid kind of bootleg release that was a bunch of tunes that um that didn't make the record that I played on. I think and I'm actually on some of them I might have actually been playing bass on on that, which is funny because you know Matt Freeman being the like you know. The famous, the famous bass player. It's funny that that I end up playing bass on a fucking rancid demo. It cracks me up, you know. Yeah, I heard. I don't know if this is what you're talking about, but I heard that there was like a a record that you recorded with Tim that was never released. That like y- you had said is some of your best songwriting. Oh well, that was super fun. That was the silences thing. So yeah. Well, so what? Ex- tell what? Tell us the whole story about this. So around the same time. As as all this is happening with the yeah the give them the boot comp and the demos for the life won't wait and all the blah 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 some of the songs that I'm throwing at them um, and we're writing together uh, Tim starts to say you know this doesn't really sound like rancid but it sounds really good so like you wanna we'll we'll put this aside and we'll we'll make a little project out of it and they pick the song policeman right. Uh, Brett Gerwitz comes in and he's just nuts about it. He's like, this tune, this is it, man. Wow, how are you not going to put this tune out? You got to put this on the record. And uh, they um, start working out some arrangements. Laws start singing harmonies on it. They they changed a couple of the words, whatever, you know. Um, and this is, of course, is a song I had written for Sick and Mad at, at the end of like Sick and Mad doing a lot of stuff. It was like at the, the cusp of Sick and Mad and the Slackers beginning, right? But it was a song that I was like, yeah, this is perfect for you guys. Like, you're going to like this. That's how the silences get, you know, it's like this, uh, who are the silences? So I don't know. It's, it's Tim Armstrong. It's me playing bass. I don't even know if I'm credited on playing or anything on it. We went in and recorded more stuff because we had five or six songs from that session that were like, hey, this is pretty cool. And we're like, cool, we'll make this the silences or whatever we want to call it. And um, yeah, I would go by uh, Tim's uh, home studio and um, we would have different sessions. I would invite musicians in. We had a lot of really cool people come in and play. And I don't know what happened. It kind of just somewhere between um, his ex-wife breaking up with him and different songs we had recorded with her getting kind of like lost, you know, and forgotten purposely because he was like, yeah, fuck that. Yeah. A lot of music just got kind of, kind of forgotten. And I feel like it was a bummer because it was a really cool moment musically. There was a lot of cool stuff happening, you know? Um, Yeah. But I think we had gotten Josh Freeze back to play drums on some stuff. I had brought my friend Simon Chartier out to play guitar. Who's, he's a, 
kind of a guitar genius, you know. All these LA guys, some of the Hepcat guys. There was all this really cool stuff happening. So, did uh, have you taken any of those songs and and uh, repackaged them as Slacker songs or or solo songs? I don't know. It was such a <laughs> weird time. <laughs> it was such a weird time that I can't honestly say I know what happened, and. It was just so much going on. I probably didn't actually. I think those songs were so written together with with Tim and written in the moment. And oh, play a part here. Oh, play a part there. Oh, let's get some horns in. Let's arrange a horn section. I'll put some piano on this. You know, hey, let's sing harmonies on that. Uh, I couldn't even say that I remember anything in particular, like a song that I could. Yeah. I just remember that it was really fucking cool (laughs) (laughs) and it bummed me out that it never got put out, that we never finished working on it. Yeah. Um, And I think the, um, what was his band that, that followed after that? Uh, I I was in that band for like 10 seconds and then it broke up or I got kicked out, I think. Um, uh, What's the one with Skinhead Rob singing? He kind of raps on it. Like. I'm blanking on it. It's the one that has the shampoo commercial song. and Exactly. They had the shampoo commercial. Why can I not think of this? Yeah. that So that, that band, I think they knew that they were going to get airplay with that band. And uh, they knew that my band was, you know, the silences or whatever was, it was more of a muso kind of artsy, um, you know, very music driven, very like, you know, but I think this, the, the rap punk, thing that they were doing you know just seemed to be like oh it's going to get more attention transplants that's what it was called transplants yeah i was in that band for like i said like about 10 seconds <laughs> i showed up for a couple of sessions never really wasn't really feeling it but i it wasn't introduced to me as a band it was just we're going to do some sessions and yeah. we're going to make these rhythms and i was really into that because i was like man give me these weird hip hop strange rhythms and let me play piano and organ on them. Yeah. Synth, I love it. You know, so I was loving that. But when I found that it was going to be like a, a punk rap band, and then they wanted to bring in this uh, Blink-182 guy on drums, that was the line for me. Because I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to play with Blink-182. Like, it's not my... You know, I I hate to say that, like, I'm, I, I don't have a lot of shots to call in the whole world, but... I get to say who I like to play with or not, you know? And I'm sure he's a good drummer and whatever, but the beats were there already. You know, they were, they were sequenced beats, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I mean, whatever he wanted, it's a band and I get about having a live band and it's cool. But I, I remember being just like, what the hell? Why do we want to play with Blink-182? I'm like, you're so much cooler than that. Like you don't need to. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know what I mean? But this is how I talk and that's my, it's a yeah. blessing and a curse for me. It gets me in trouble sure. because I say shit that I probably shouldn't say to somebody at the moment. You know, now a million years in the, in, in the past, it doesn't matter what I say, you know? And, mm-hmm. um, but in that moment, I could have probably been a bit more tactful about it. But I remember just saying, what, what do you mean? <laughs> Why that? I mean, you got Josh Freeze you could ask to be in the band. I mean- you know, it's like having a choice between, uh, I mean, come on, you know? Yeah. And and I what I didn't realize is that they were friends, you know, that uh, Blink-182 guy is friends with Tim or they grew up together or something. 
And I guess he is a good, really good drummer too. So maybe I didn't give him his due either. And sure. I was being unfair, but you know. So somewhere between um, the question and Wasted Days, I just have a little side tangent here. Uh, Slackers play a show in Tuba City at the Crack Shack. Do you remember this oh, show? Yeah. Who can forget? It was fantastic. <laughs> tell us about <laughs> tell us about the Slackers playing at the Crack Shack in Tuba City. Oh my God! Well, first of all, I don't know where we came from the night before, but I mean, I was so hungover that it was unreal, <laughs> and it was back before I had my diet to together. I before I knew like my food allergies and things, and it was the first time that any of us had ever tasted fry bread. I think, which mm. is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like real classic Navajo, you know, local specialty. Um, I mean, I guess like all, all the, it's a, it's a big native dish, right? Yeah. Native Americans, fry bread. Yeah. Um, I just remember them treating us like so good and having such a blast and being so like, you talk about having your eyes opened to a new reality. Like, you know, they, they showed us dinosaur footprints in the desert. Um, I bought like a Kachina doll. Uh, I couldn't believe that they all looked so Asian. Like I just was like, oh my God, like I totally get it now. You know, like they, they're like, you know, that whole thing about the, the, uh, Bering Straits all, all of a sudden it all made sense to me. I was mm-hmm. like, oh my God. I'm like, you know, if I didn't, if you didn't open your mouth, I would think you were Japanese. Like, you know, or, like bizarre. I yeah. mean, it was just totally blew me away. And then not to mention, I'd never been on the res more than driving past it on a highway. Yeah. Um, so to actually set foot in the res and hang out with kids and have a a day was awesome. You know, I mean, it was, they were so nice. And I thought it was so cool that they were being like completely DIY about this. And they had, you know, saved up money and they would get bands all sorts of different bands to stop through and play this like dilapidated house in the middle of you know this weirdo like kind of desert landscape i mean it was just so surreal you know yeah not too different than any other punk show i'd say that i played anywhere else except for the fact that i mean oh my god it was like playing a punk show on the moon you know yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was great. And, and, you know, I've stayed friends with, there are people that show up that were from that show that still say hi to me. And I've gone back to the Navajo nation and I've gone back and driven around Hopi land and, uh, ran into people and still talk to people. And, uh, there are people that come up and say that, you know, Hey, my older brother was at this show, you know, like it's almost generational now. Yeah. You know, hey, I know you because my older brother played me this music. He was at your show at the at the Crack Shack, you know, and I'm like, what? It was magical, magical day. Yeah, Adam, Adam's band played the Crack Shack twice in that same time period. So like, cool. I know for him, that's probably like some of his favorite shows he's ever played. Well, it was just weird because it was like the bands that played there were like Falling Sickness, Slackers, Link 80. <laughs> there was like maybe one other like kind of bigger punk band. And then it was just all like the Navajo and Hopi punk bands. Yeah. Who were all sick too, but like never really made it outside of the res scene. Yeah. And I just remember the shows just being like unhinged. Like they were really good. Oh, kids were like wild. I mean, and that, that 
shack that it was, I mean, was like falling apart. I mean, oh, yeah. like, I don't know what the, f- I can remember details like about the floor just being like, what is that? It's like <laughs> disintegrating under my feet, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I've got a, I've got a great picture of, uh, you guys setting up, um, to play, to play the show. No way. Yeah. I'll send it to you. Wow. What was that band? Um, what was that scene? Uh, this, this bike, this bike is a pipe bomb. Is that, Am I saying that band name oh, correctly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what was that? What was that little record label scene called? That were those bands? Um, because so like a, the other kind of bands that played there were like bands from that scene too, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting. Um, you know, because Adam's talking about falling sickness and all that. Yeah, but the those bands played there too. Oddly enough, yeah. Well, it's funny when you talk about genre crossing. That's another thing too. With people are just enjoying. They seem to be just enjoying something that like it does not have anything to do with like any sense of musical genre. Like we would play with uh, some of the bands. We we recently went out and played um uh Shiprock. We played Shiprock and we played with one of the bands that's my friend Jordan's band. And like they're just this crazy, like psychotic, like metal punk, like <laughs> You know, it it's just not what you'd expect to be the band that opens the show, you know? Uh, or to mention, like, knowing the guys, like, you just don't expect that they're going to play this, like, gruesome, like, like <laughs> you know, crazy-ass music. It's like, wow. It's like, you guys. And then, so excited to see the slackers. Like, you know, we're going to come up and be like, you know? So Wasted Days, I was like, so to, Wasted Days is 2001. Culturally, ska is kind of out of fashion at this point. Mm. But uh, you guys you guys get featured on NPR. It feels like you guys are kind of getting an ele- Your status is sort of being elevated uh, as, the, um, as the larger culture is like sort of saying, okay, we're over. We're over and done with ska, the ska music. Mm. Is that how you remember that time period? We we got we did better as the ska craze ended. When yeah, uh, when the ska craze was happening, we weren't like like I said, we were never on the inside track. We were always the outsiders, and people who dug us, they got it, they dug us. But we were not we were not grabbing that zeitgeist of what people were enjoying for ska, right? Um. And we were we were lucky if you know people just happened to show up at our show and saw us and liked us, right? When all those bands started quitting and going off the road, um, we took all their gigs. We took all their gigs and we took all their <laughs> fans that were looking for a gig to go to. They had been like, "Hey, we had all this great dance music for two or three years. Where to go? All that's left is the stupid slackers. Now we got to go to that show." <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, there we were. We were there, and the people that really liked us were psyched that we were out there. And then the people that didn't know that they liked us showed up at the show, and I think half of them found out they liked us. You know, this period of time um, from like wasted days on, I think you guys also really shifted gears to being like, okay, so we're going to be a road band. Uh, we're not going to op- We're not going to be uh, an opener anymore. Hmm. we're just going to be the slackers. We're just going to play clubs and we're just going to build our fan base through playing consistently, putting on a good show, coming through the same town, you know, every year and just sort of doing it the old fashioned way. Yes. 
now here we are in like you know 2023 and i feel like you guys have really shown that that is an effective strategy for you guys because you have you're able to just tour you're able to draw and just kind of carve out a living playing music this way yeah i think we learned we learned from watching bands that did a lot of opening slots we we knew some bands that were fantastic that seemed like they spent all their energy doing openings and it didn't necessarily mean that people followed you to your own show. Yeah. You know, for yeah. the opening slot. It sounds like a great idea and it is a good idea in the early, in the beginning of your band. Um, you know, you can ask the scofflaws about how I hounded them to get opening <laughs> slots. <laughs> the old their old sax player Mike Drant says don't ever give Vic Ruggiero your phone number. He will never stop bothering you about an opening slot. <laughs> it's a good strategy at first, but I got to say, grassroots, going out, playing bars, you know, it's funny because people will say, oh, you know, you, you come from an era that was a golden age of, you know, bands and, you know, being able to self-promote and everything. <clears throat> I, I agree partially, but I also think that it's just as tough or easy as it's ever been, uh, depending on how you look at it. I mean, you got social media now. You know, you can take a video of yourself playing a gig. You, nobody actually has to be there except for the 10 people that are actually in the crowd. Now, you, you can put that video on YouTube. You can share it around if you're really good at that. You know, you can make friends with somebody that's good at it, you know, and get your music around. Um, there's nothing like grassroots literally going out on the sidewalk and playing and getting people that walk by and say, here's my record here. Come see me tonight. You know, uh, it's real hustling, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think the slack is, we're good at that and all good. To get people to care about you specifically, like you're saying to bet, to develop an audience that's your audience. Like that's very important. And that's like, a, a that's not necessarily easy to do. Like, and I think that's what you guys really did do in, in the last couple decades is you like, you were said like, we're the slackers, you know, we're not necessarily part of the scene or that scene or whatever, but we're the slackers be part yeah. of the slackers scene. And, uh, you know, people, people go to your shows every year. Yeah. You know, what's funny is I, I remember one time in Texas, um, we showed, we showed up and there must've been something going on where like some some local ska contingent of, uh, you know, some tough guy, some tough guy ska contingent decided they were all going to show up at the Slackers gig. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you guys have never been here before. I mean, like, we've been coming here for years, but like, who are you guys, you know? And they all decide they're going to like, you know, pal around with us before the show and like, hey, yeah, you guys, you guys are ska. Yeah, we get it. Da, da, da. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm just going to talk a bunch of hippy dippy shit tonight <laughs> to make sure that these guys know what show they're at. You know, cause like, <laughs> I'm definitely not catering to this vibe, you know? And I was like, yeah, man. Cause you know, like sometimes don't you just want to wear like flowers in your hair and just go around and hug people. Cause like every, we all get along, right? We're all, we're all beautiful people. And a, come on, all beautiful. Let's all give each other a hug in the crowd tonight. Come on, everybody. You know? And I remember just these guys looking at us like, oh, we're definitely at the wrong show. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that's right. You know, make sure you know what show you're at. You're at a Slackers gig. We're not going to cater to you because, you, you know, oh, you think we should act tough or uh, encourage something in a certain way. Like, we have our fans, 
And that's the reason our fans keep coming back is because they like they dig our vibes, you know? Yeah. Um, and you know, it's the same thing. They tell us too. They tell us what what we what we like. You know, people give me records at shows or books or talk to me about something and they tell me something I should be checking out and I check it out and then I come back and maybe I got a song about it next time, you know? It's definitely a symbiotic relationship, you know? It's been interesting too this last few years, like, you know, new new bands like on Bad Time and stuff have been getting a lot of a lot of people have been paying attention to these new bands or new ish, we should say. Like Cat Bite and um We're the Union and stuff. But you guys also like you guys were you play, you played live on uh like Rolling Stone live stream, you had a Washington Post feature, you hit um your new album hit number one on the reggae reggae billboard chart too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was exciting. That was like a funny moment of, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's kind of like in the classroom. It's like, you get a gold star today. You know? <laughs> yeah. I think too, wasn't it, wasn't it because you'd never been in Billboard, you were like deemed a new band? We, we get, yeah, I, it was amazing. <laughs> I mean, we've actually charted on Billboard in the past. So, I mean, it's, it's not, it's maybe it's 20 years ago or something, you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, props to to Pirates Press, they actually did it the right way that, you know, if, if you ship everything at the right time and you, you wait, you wait to ship things, you, you make it, it really makes it register as how many records you're shipping instead of like shipping them all like five at a time every day, you, you never show up anywhere, you know? Mm-hmm. So they knew how to do it the right way that, that all the record companies do it. And so it actually was good. It gives us a little credential to work with, you know, like we, yeah, you know. A lot of a lot of times we um, we listen to other bands' uh, stats, you know, and they'll say, "Oh yeah, well look, this is how they came in on Polestar, and uh, and this is what how many people, and this is the venues they're playing, and da da da." And we're like, "Man, everybody's making a big deal out of this band, but like, we played the same place as them and actually sold it out. Like, why is nobody writing about us? You know? Well, like these guys did ten gigs this year." Like we did 150. Like what's what's going on? Like why is nobody noticing it? Everybody treats us like we're a bunch of schmucks. And it's like just because and, and you know, that's not to complain. I'm happy where I'm at and I love the underground. But um it's one of those things where I I think we wonder sometimes, like, hey, does anybody see what's happening here? Like, you know, we just because we're not the cool guys, you know, nobody's gonna put us on the cover of a magazine, you know? It's like uh I remember when we saw the Strokes on the cover of the magazine. I remember it really stuck in my craw. Uh, you know, they were like the Sound of New York. You know, the Strokes. Like, <laughs> you break. Who the hell are these guys? We we are in. We live in New York. We're, they're not the Sound of New York. We don't know who the hell these guys are. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime there's a, a rock and roll revival, or at least that's how it used to be, it's like this is this is the thing that matters right now. Exactly. A band's playing uh, rock and roll again. <laughs> It's like, come on. I know. There's other there's other things that matter. <laughs> I know. And it's, you know, it, I, I can't I can't um say that I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Um yes, I did believe and I do believe, you know, that this music, you know, that reggae and ska and rock steady and those beats are, you know, they contain a cert a certain uh undeniable beauty and and uh value that that you 
you can't deny. I mean, it's just, um, what's, I don't know how to explain it. It's like a diamond, you know? It's like there's a certain tangible beauty there that cannot be argued with, you know? Yeah. It's just that I think everybody plays it and they don't tell us that they're playing it, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> God forbid you say that you're playing reggae. I mean, you'll just never get the respect that you deserve, you know, or that, you know, I watch all these great acts, these great reggae singers and, you know, even bands, you know, bands like the specials, you know, they only get the respect now, like a million years later, you know, uh, they were always kind of a footnote because they got called the ska band, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I agree. I mean, as much as they're respected or were respected, they still like, you could compare them to all the other like post-punk bands of the UK in that era. Mm -hmm. Totally not given the same not place as like yeah. like oh um what's the name of that band um uh what's any any name any like post-punk band from the from the late 70s in, in england yeah gang of four gang of four there's a perfect example yeah hail i mean i like gang of four don't get me wrong me too hailed is geniuses but the specials oh yeah no they're not bad right Right, I remember, and I remember somebody telling me one time too. They were like, "Oh yeah, the specials, yeah, all their songs covers," and I was like, "Give me a break!" I'm like, "Yeah, sure, they 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 rip a riff from here and there." I'm like, "But come on, these guys are like visionaries. They took they took all these different things, mashed them together, and made this gorgeous this gorgeous thing that had never happened before." You know, I'm like, these guys deserve massive credit. You know. Um, yeah, sure. They didn't have the the catalog like the Clash or something, you know. Um, that's for sure. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Something about reggae. It's always gonna. It's always gonna be stuck in a little, you know, reggae ghetto, ska ghetto. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I know. Especially here in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah, we don't do it. Then they don't do themselves any favors. It's. Uh, <laughs> you know that cat bite. I gotta say, just listen to their record, their recent thing, whatever it's called. Um, nicely done or something like that or nice one nice one and what i really like about that is it's just so rock and roll like the sounds are just garage rock and classic you know guitar tones and the singing is like just good singing and it's cool it's just like really cool and it does something that you know i kind of wish had been happening all along and i think when we talk about the early slackers you know, we just didn't have the prowess to pull it off, you know. But I think that they have the same vision mm -hmm. of seeing all the music having much more in common with each other. Things, you know, seeing all of these genres having much more in common with each other than they than they don't have in common. Mm -hmm. You know, I think yeah. that there is not a big, big difference between all the genres people like to talk about. It's It's groovy music, you know. Don't go anywhere. If you want to hear the rest of this conversation, head over to our Patreon. Thank you for listening to In Defense of Scott. Please rate and review this podcast and tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at In Defense of Scott. Pick up Aaron's book, In Defense of Ska, at your local bookstore or online. This podcast is edited by Chris Reeves of Ska Punk International. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigong. 
leaving you by saying ska now more than ever. Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.